Well, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we will get started, all right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, come and to look at your word and to see how it calls us to uh, live in light of who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. We pray that as we examine this passage that you would help us to understand it and that as we understand it, we pray that you would convict our hearts and help us to see areas in our lives where we are in need of change. We pray that we would be willing to humble ourselves and be willing to uh, pursue um, humble, submissive obedience to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32. So if you would take your Bibles and let's turn to that passage, and we're just going to read through it, and then we will uh, work through the text and kind of try to dig out the big ideas. If you would, the big idea or the theme of the passage is that God orchestrates our lives to bring repentance and reliance on him. God orchestrates our lives to bring repentance and reliance on him. And so as we we look at the story, it's interesting, Jacob has been a man who has been characterized throughout his entire life as somebody who is self-reliant, who is self-sufficient, who thinks that he can do it all on his own and that he doesn't need any help from anybody else because he is good enough all on his own. And as we enter this text, he's been living by faith. In chapter 31, he learned that he's been told by God to go back to the land that he's been, been from. And so he returns to the land that he's supposed to be from. And as he returns to that land... He has demonstrations of God's faithfulness to him, but he also is rebuked and is taught a lesson about how self-reliant he has been and how God wants him to, to turn to him in greater faith and greater reliance and repent of his own deception and his own self-sufficiency. And so the big idea is really God orchestrates our lives to bring repentance and reliance on him. Let's read Genesis 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. <clears throat> and he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who has said to me, Return to your country and to your family. I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth that you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have come back two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, 
I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 13. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk cows with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Those who are, whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, all who follow the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. And he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, and he himself lodged that night in the camp. Verse 22, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent other over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against them, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go, unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, What is it that you ask about? Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that strength, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. The big idea of the passage is that God orchestrates our lives to bring about repentance and reliance on him. As the text begins, you really see this idea that the danger of self-sufficiency and deception. It's interesting, verse 1 begins and it's an awesome demonstration from God about who God is. And about what God is doing for Jacob. The angels come and this should be a, a reminder to Jacob that he is being cared for, that he is being provided for by God. And as he looks at this, he names the place Mahanaim, which talks about the two camps. His camp and God's camp have converged at this point. God is with him. God is caring for him. 
And while you and I look at this and we're like, man, that's a huge source of encouragement. Jacob should take this truth and be like, wow, isn't the God I serve so good? He has provided for me. He has cared for me. I have a huge family. I have immense wealth. I've been preserved and protected from Laban's deceitfulness. I've been preserved and protected from Laban's desire to do me harm. God came in a dream and told him in a dream, Do not harm Jacob. And now look. God is sending angels to me. And this is God's camp. And this is where my camp is. And yet that's not how Jacob looks at the situation. How do I know that? Well, what's Jacob's next response? He sends messengers to who? To his brother. But it's interesting. Throughout this whole text, he's not going to call Esau his brother, does he? No. Esau is his lord, and what is Jacob? He's the servant. Tuck that away. Notice how he uses this idea of servant. Who is Jacob? He is a servant, but whose servant? Is he God's servant? Is he relying on God? Or is he relying on his own abilities to maneuver and to deceive early on in this text? But he sends a message to Esau, and he says, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And so Jacob refuses to trust God to care for him before Esau. And it doesn't look like Esau's accepted this attempt to find favor. How do I know that? Verse 6, all of a sudden Esau is marching towards Jacob with 400 men. I'd be afraid too, right? My natural response wouldn't be like, yeah, I'll take on 400 men. You know, that's not me. Okay. But that's what Jacob's response is as well. He's fearful. The messengers come back from meeting Esau. We came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. And Jacob's response is fear. And he actually, his fear is going to lead him to try to manipulate God. Instead of turning to God in reliance and faith and obedience like we saw him do at the beginning of 31 when God tells him, leave Laban, go back to your home. What's he doing? Look at it. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies, and they said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company that is left will escape. He's plotting. He's planning. He's not trusting God. But then it's like, well, I don't want to like throw all my eggs in one basket. So I'm going to pray as well. And maybe if I pray and really come before God and act like I'm relying on God, maybe God will deliver me. Maybe God will protect me. And so he comes before God and he's, he's praying one of the longest prayers we have in the Old Testament. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family. 
and I will dwell well, deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. Isn't that interesting? Whose servant is he? It's like he's flip-flopping. He's talking to Esau. He's like, I'm your servant. You are my Lord. Then he goes and he talks to God. And he's like, I'm your servant. Remember the promises you made to me. He's seeking to manipulate and connive even God. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have come, become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he comes before God, and he seems at first sight, you're like, when you just read the prayer, and you take it completely out of context of what are Jacob's actions? Is Jacob living in reliance and trust in God's word? And is he praying a prayer like this? Or is Jacob's actions still following Jacob's past pattern of deception and self-reliance, self-sufficiency? And as you look at his actions... He's still pursuing deception. He's still pursuing self-reliance, self-sufficiency. He's not truly trusting God with his whole being and the whole situation. He's still trying to find his own way to accomplish his own means. And as he tries to do this, he's failing. He's not succeeding. Note with me the following verses. Once again, he's done praying this magnificent prayer. And as you look at the prayer and you just take the prayer at face value, it's like, wow, Jacob is so spiritual. I mean, what a, a giant of the faith to be able to pray a prayer like verses 9 through 12 has. Does it really reflect what Jacob is doing when he's not praying? And the answer is no. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau's brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats. And he goes on and he lists all these animals that he's sending his brother or his master. I don't know. It's actually his Lord. That's what he calls him repeatedly. He's sending them to his master. Why? Because he hopes that through these gifts, over 500 animals are being sent to his brother Esau. Why? In an attempt to deceive Esau into receiving him with favor, being gracious to him. And the idea that the text wants us to realize is that God is the one who brings about favor in our lives. God is the one who can act graciously with you and with me. And so the big idea of the text is once again brought to the forefront. God orchestrates our lives to bring repentance and reliance on him. And as we do that, God is gracious in our lives. No verse 18. Then you shall say, that your servant Jacob's, they are your servant Jacob's, it is a present to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Note verse 20. 
Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. Whose servant is he? He's flip-flopping. He's uncertain of who he's going to put his trust in. Is he going to trust that he can somehow find favor and get Esau to forgive him for all the sin that he has done against Esau? Or is he going to trust that God will work in Esau's life in his situation to deliver him from what seems to be an insurmountable situation? And the answer is, he's trusting his own abilities. He's trusting his own success. And so the present goes on before him. But Jacob is not done conniving. He's not done. You might think that that was enough. Enough self-reliance and deception and planning to seek to uh, assure that his life was preserved and that his stuff was preserved. But he does one of the most unmanly things possible. What does he do? He's having insomnia. He can't sleep. And because of that, in verse 22, he arises that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. What's he doing? He's putting his family and all of his possessions on the other side of the river, where they'll be closest to Esau. And then he's staying on the other side. Isn't that a man's man? Okay, I mean, the guy is self-reliant. He's self-sufficient. He refuses to trust God. And God wants to bring him to a place where he's humbled. And he's willing to humbly trust God. To repent and to rely on God. And as, as we look at this passage and we think about how could somebody be so unmanly as Esau, as Jacob is, sorry, to be able to do all the stuff he's done just in relationship to his brother and then to top it all off with this beautiful cherry of alright wives I love you sons I love you all 11 of you and I love all the stuff I have but why don't you all go out ahead of me and maybe he'll have mercy upon you because he won't see me because I'm in the back it's like what what what's wrong with this guy he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. And this is this is really the, the culmination of the passage. This is what the whole passage has been working towards. The passage has pointed out time and time again throughout the passage that there is a character flaw in the man, Jacob. And it's a character flaw that we really have seen. It's been the problem we've seen in chapter 28, 29, 30, 31. And we still see in 32. 31's a little bit better. He's living by faith to a greater deal. But there's still this problem of self-sufficiency and a failure to trust and to live by faith in God's plan. And what God wants for you and what God wants for me is for us to be willing to humble ourselves and to say, I don't know everything I can't deal with all the situations and all the problems that life brings to me 
My wisdom is not sufficient for dealing with the heartaches and the trials of this life. I need something greater. I need God's word. I need to humble myself and bring myself under submission to God's word. And that's really what this text is about. It's about Jacob learning that truth. All his maneuvering, all his actions are insufficient. God goes through great lengths, great anxiety, great hardship in Jacob's life to bring him to this one night where God teaches him a theological lesson that is a theological lesson that you need and a theological lesson that I need. And it's a lesson that we must be reminded of on a day-to-day -day basis. We must live by, we must walk by faith. That's what the text is telling us. And as he wrestles with this man in verse 24, he begins wrestling with him in 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. This is, this is the, the man, God, touching Jacob's hip. And it was out of joint and as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob has been trying his whole life to get the blessing. He's been maneuvering and doing different things, stealing the birthright, stealing the blessing from Jacob or from Isaac. But the blessing from Isaac isn't the blessing of God. He's blessed by God as he journeys to Padanaram. He sees God's blessing, but he's not satisfied. He's still seeking it. And he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And God asks him a question. And his question is, what is your name? He's really asking him a question that really gets to the heart of who Jacob is. Who are you, Jacob? And if you remember, Jacob means deceiver. And that's who Jacob's been perpetually trying to manipulate the situation to achieve his desired ends. Not in God's timing, not in God's way. And has he been blessed? Yes, he's been blessed. But it's not how God wanted it to be. And he says, my name's Jacob. I'm the deceiver. And God responds, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. What does Israel mean? God fights. Jacob, God is going to fight your battles from now on. You don't need to continue striving and pursuing your own means to an end. You're done with that. It hasn't worked yet and it won't work you haven't been successful with this self-reliance this self-sufficiency this deception i want you to trust me i want you to rely on me to live in faithful submission and obedience to me that's really what the text is about and God says, you have struggled with God and with men 
and you have prevailed. He's not talking about this this fight right here. I mean, God just completely lamed Israel for the rest of his life by simply touching his hip hop, his hip hop socket. If God wanted to win the battle and completely crush him, he could have. The idea is, yes, you are the one who is supposed to get the blessing. But you've been pursuing it in your own time and in your own way by deception, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. Stop it. Don't continue down this path of being a deceiver. Instead, rely on me. Let me the God who is capable of everything and who has protected and blessed and cared for you for these past 20 years when you were out of the promised land. Let me fight your battles. Trust in me. Rely on me. And the question really is, whatever the situation that you're going through, whatever the situation that I'm going through, where do we go in those situations where do we turn to for help in the hard times of life when we lose a job when we have a family crisis when we have a medical crisis where do we go and what the text is trying to teach us is the only place that we can go that will ever be sufficient is to trust in God to rely on God to allow him to work his will Jacob moves on and he says, Tell me your name, I pray. And God says, Why is it that you ask my name? And here God blesses Jacob. God has now told him, I will fight the battle for you. Your self-reliance, your self-sufficiency, your deception is not sufficient. I will fight for you and indeed you have received my blessing. Jacob, now Israel, realizes that this is truly an immense situation and event in his life. And he gets up from the place, and his life has permanently been changed. Physically. And to a very real extent, it's been changed spiritually as well. He has learned a theological lesson. His own self-reliance is insufficient. God wants him to live by faith, to walk by faith. But he also realizes something else. Yeah, he's preserved in the middle of the fight. In verse 30 he says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Yes, God preserved him. God didn't kill him in the middle of that fight. And God could have easily crushed his head with one single touch. I think this preservation is talking about something more than just the little fight that has occurred in this section right here. I think Jacob is realizing that God is going to preserve him from this bigger situation with Esau. God is going to fight the fight for him. And he no longer has to seek to manipulate the situation. As we enter into chapter 33 next week, Jacob's whole approach to 
Esau is going to be changed. Remember, he sent on his kids and his, his wives ahead of him to go, go meet Esau ahead of him. But in chapter 33, when he meets Esau, who's leading the way? Israel is leading the way. The one whom God is going to fight for leads the way ahead of his family. Why? Because God's told him your self-reliance, your self-sufficiency, your deception will not work. I'm going to fight for you, and I want you to live by faith. I want you to trust in me. Not only has it changed Israel's appearance, but it also changes how Israelites eat. And so they quit eating that hip sockets, the muscle that was attached to that hip socket. And so what does this passage call on you and I to do? Where do you go for blessing? How do you pursue blessing? Are you pursuing it with your own means or are you going to God? Maybe you're here today and as, as you're listening to this whole situation, the whole idea of living by faith is somewhat difficult to hear and to comprehend and to think through. What exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe you're like, I don't know if I've ever lived by faith. The beginning step of living by faith is for you to realize who you are. I mean, it's very much like Jacob. He's required to realize that he is the deceiver. And you know what? I, I don't know who all are able to watch or who will watch in the future, but you're a sinner. You may not have committed the worst sin that is out there, but you've committed sins against your family, against your, co your co-workers, against your employer, against your friends. Against people you don't even know. Most importantly, though, you've committed sins against God. And when we commit sins against God, God requires that we pay for those sins. And with your own self-sufficiency, your own self-reliance, and your own abilities, the only way for you to pay for them is with your life in eternal punishment in hell. And you'll never be able to pay the full payment. In fact, you really don't pay any of it. It's just your punishment. But because of God's infinite grace and mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the earth to die on the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve and that I deserve so that I can place my faith in his finished work and choose to live by faith, saying there's nothing I could possibly ever do to earn God's favor, God's blessing. I'm going to choose to live by faith. I'm going to choose to trust in Jesus' finished work. That's the first thing that you and I must do if we're going to be people who live by faith. Then we got to remember that God fights our battles. And that requires that you and I live by faith, which requires that we, we know God's word. I can't live by faith according to something that I don't know. 
So we have to be meditating on God's Word. We have to read God's Word and know what God tells us to do. Much of it, it's fairly common sense stuff. You know not to hit people, right? Tell our kids from like two not to hit people. Actually, we've told Anastasia from like before she was one not to hit people, right? I mean, it's like ingrained in you. But you know how to treat people. You know what God requires of you in your relationships? He wants you to point people to truth. But are you studying God's word so that you have a fuller, deeper understanding of the truth that he wants you to live in faith before? And that he wants you to take and present to others, your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. God wants you and I to realize that our own self-sufficiency is insufficient. He wants us to repent and to rely on him, to live by faith, to fight our battles. The question is, are you going to choose this week to live by faith? Am I going to choose this week to live by faith? Do, do the hard things that I know that I'm supposed to do and do them in an excellent way, not for my own glory, but for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. That's what the story is about. It's about us seeing our own sinfulness, seeing how we are self-reliant and self-sufficient, and saying, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to choose to live by faith, to live in obedience to God's word. I pray that that's your desire, that that's your aim for this coming week. Let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the passage. We pray that we would uh, pursue to live out these truths, that we would seek to repent of our own self-reliance and turn to you in repentance and reliance on your word and your plan for our lives. We pray that as we do so, that you would work in our lives and that you would be fighting the battles that we face, that you would help us to live by grace as we go through those. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we'll have a Zoom prayer meeting tomorrow, Wednesday at 7 p.m. So you can be looking for a link um, to your email. Um, other than that, I think that's all I have. I'll give you a few minutes to sign off of Facebook. I know some of you have been having problems with uh, videos that pop up afterwards. I'm going to sign off of Zoom. Have a good evening, all of you. Bye. And... Have a good evening, all of you.